Good morning, everyone. Welcome to One Life Community Church. My name is Ben, um, and it is so great to be with you here on Pentecost Sunday. That's right, Pentecost. I see some people wearing red, got the red tablecloth, red lighting. That is symbolic for Pentecost, which is the day we celebrate when the church really was formed, when the church began to explode and went from a group of about 120 to over 3,000 in one day, and then exponentially grew across the whole world, which led to us being here almost 2,000 years later, (laughs) worshiping in a different language, the same resurrected Jesus. How cool is that? Pretty awesome, in my opinion. (laughs) Yeah. Well, this is the last sermon in our Impact of the Resurrection sermon series, where we've been looking at the impact of the resurrection um, on different areas of our life and our thought. So, for example, we talked about how uh, we follow a person, not an abstract theology or philosophy, how we have hope in the present moment, how it impacts race, how it impacts our understanding of beauty, how it gives us hope for the future in the midst of difficult, in the midst of pain. And then last week, how it impacts missions and specifically giving to missions. And today, as I mentioned, is Pentecost Sunday. So we will talk about the impact of the resurrection on Pentecost. But before we get going, I'd like to make you aware of the blank space in your bulletins. Uh, In there, you can take notes, draw pictures, write down questions, do whatever it is that helps you stay engaged. And then there's also a connection card in there. Um, And at the end of the message, we'll have a short time of reflection. And I'll have a couple questions for you to think about. It'd be great if you could write your answers down there and then write some prayer requests and then drop them off in the boxes as you exit. That way we know how to pray for you, what you're processing, and what you're feeling. Let's pray. God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, be with us today. I pray that we would be your temple today, tomorrow, and for the rest of our lives. Be with us as we learn from you. In Jesus' name, amen. So what is Pentecost? Well, it's actually the Greek name for a, a Jewish festival called the Feast of Weeks. And the Feast of Weeks occurs 50 days after Passover. Hence the name Pentecost, because pente means 50 in Greek. Um, and Pentecost is one of three feasts that all uh, Jews at that time period were required to go to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices at the temple and celebrate and partake in the feast. And they would last days, many days. And the three were Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Passover, and remember Passover is around the time when Jesus was crucified, and sort of what we remember with communion. And then there's Feast of Pentecost, which is what we are remembering today. Um, And during these feasts, Jerusalem would get five times larger or more, depending on how many of the diaspora, meaning the Israelites that were living in other parts of the Roman Empire or beyond, how many of them would show up. It could get just huge. So there were people from all over the known world in attendance. Now let's read Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one of them heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? 
then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? So what does this mean? That is the question the people there asked, and that is the question we are going to discuss today. Because Pentecost was the moment the church began to multiply like crazy, and it's the formation of the church that would be comprised of, at the beginning, right away, multiple ethnicities and backgrounds and races. But once again, what does this story mean? Um, You see, the New Testament writers, they were all Israelites or had been immersed in Israelite culture and the Old Testament probably since a young age. And this was not a random moment to them. In fact, whenever the bystanders ask, what does this mean? I don't think it's like they're really confused and they don't know what's going on. I think they know what's happening here. They're just like, wow, what does this mean for us right now right, and right here today? Because this is insane what we're seeing right now. Because they know what just happened. And then Peter gets up, preaches a message, and 3,000 people get added to the church that day. But what is that story that the disciples are living in? If you've heard me speak before, you will know that I enjoy looking at the stories in terms of the grand narrative arc of the Bible. I've talked about that a couple of times, and that's because I really believe that the Bible tells one unified story from the mouths and perspectives of many different humans, and the story is beautiful and complex. And since I don't get to speak that often, I figured I could tell you the story of the Bible once more, (laughs) Um, except this time through the lens of temple. So we're going to trace a different theme through the Bible, because this is what is really happening here. This is the moment the church began, became the temple of God here on earth and is still the temple through us and through you. I grew up in a church hearing about how we are the temple of God or you are the temple of God, but it was mostly to say, like, don't do drugs and don't get tattoos on your body. And uh, I'll be honest, as I started hearing, reading this in the Bible and seeing how the Bible portrayed the temple, um, it blew my mind. It's so much more grand than that and so much more exciting. So my hope is that by the end of this message, you will also have a deeper appreciation for what it means to be the temple of God, and that you will be super excited for that vision and that story that you are a part of, that vision and story and for the temple to expand across the entire known universe. That being said, we are going to cover a lot of ground today. Um, as we look at the temple of God, uh, it might feel like you're drinking from a fire hose, but rest assured, it will all tie up in the end. But before we start the story... We, have to, we need a definition of temple, right? So what is a temple? In my opinion, the temple is the, uh, in the Israelite mindset, the temple was the unique place where God dwelled and interacted with humans. It is the place where heaven and earth, God's space and human space become one. The Israelites believed God lived everywhere, that he was present everywhere, that he was omnipresent. But there was something unique about certain locales, such as the Garden of Eden, the tabernacle, the temple, the top of Mount Sinai, the burning bush, and many other places that God chose to reveal himself. So once again, the temple is a unique place where God dwelled and interacted with humans. With that in mind, let's go to the very first page of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created light and darkness, land and sea, creatures of the air and creatures of the sea. Everything was created by him, and at the pinnacle of creation... He formed humans, and in the image of God, he created them. 
They were to be his representatives, his caretake, the caretakers, the priests in this first temple. And you may be wondering how this garden is at all a temple, but remember our definition, the place where God lived and interacted with humans. And in the story of the garden, we see God walking around and talking to Adam and Eve multiple times. And in fact, later on down the road, when the tabernacle and the temple are built, the way it's described and the instructions for building it is very reminiscent of the garden. And there's tons of garden imagery in the tabernacles and in the temple. In fact, uh, a Bible scholar named Margaret Barker says this, the temple and the tabernacle, which for the most part shared its symbolism, represented creation. The six days of creation described in Genesis 1 were replicated in the six stages of building the desert tabernacle. All that is to say is there are many parallels between the garden and the temple, but we don't have time to go through them all today. So, as I said, the temple is the garden, and the first priests are Adam and Eve. And after the temple is created, after this garden is created, the first thing God commands Adam and Eve is, God says, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living thing that moves on the ground. The original command was to multiply and subdue the earth. This insinuates that there were borders to the garden and that outside the garden, all was not as it was inside the garden. It wasn't peaceful and ordered. This means that Adam and Eve were given the mandate to go to the fringes of the garden or outside it and begin to cultivate God's goodness and beauty by expanding this garden temple over the entire earth. Now, if you're like me, then the idea of ruling and subduing makes you a little bit uncomfortable. But we have to look at this through the lens of Jesus. Paul, a writer uh, after Jesus' death, resurrection, ascension, who's a writer in the New Testament, says that Jesus was the perfect Adam, or is the perfect Adam, that he is the perfect image of God and the full revelation of God. Jesus is God the Son. And how did Jesus rule and become king? Well, he ruled by serving, loving enemies, proclaiming forgiveness, washing his disciples' feet, saying that the last shall be first and the first shall be last. And he ultimately became the king of the world by allowing the world to wrought violence upon his being, which in turn resulted in the redemption of the universe. So to subdue and to rule is to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, nothing else. So we have this first temple, the garden, and then we have the first priests, Adam and Eve, and they're given this, mul- this mandate to multiply and expand this garden temple across the earth. But unfortunately, things did not go as planned, and the relationship between God and humans was strained, and they ended up getting kicked out of the garden. Now the rest of the Bible is about how that garden, how heaven and earth will become one, how the temple will become part of earth once more, and God will dwell and interact with humans everywhere. But it's slow going. Next we come to the story of Noah. In this story, God causes water to flood the earth, but uh, he spares Noah and his family, and they're told to build an ark to ride out the flood. After the flood, uh, God gives Noah a covenant that he will never do that again, and then he repeats the command given to Adam and Eve. The exact same thing. He says, now go and multiply across the earth and rule and subdue it. While there's no concrete temple imagery in the story of Noah, Um, There are many scholars who believe that actually the ark is symbolic of a temple. Um, But either way, here is God commanding a new humanity into a new earth to go forth and spread and multiply. Then we come to Abraham, and we read the beginning of his story in Genesis chapter 1. Here it is up on the screen. The Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. 
I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Adam, Eve, and Noah are commanded to multiply, but here in this story, it's a promise. There's a promise that Abraham will become a great nation. The command is to obey, and the promise is multiplication. Things are reversed a little bit. God says Abraham will become a great nation. Abraham will be given land, and Abraham will be a blessing to the world. But how will he be a blessing to the world? How can one man bless the entire world? That makes zero sense. Well, the New Testament authors look at this passage and they say, well, Jesus is a descendant of Abraham, and it's through Jesus that the world has been redeemed. And then according to Paul, it is through Jesus that we've been adopted into this family of Abraham. Paul says that the Israelite nation was only like a partial fulfillment of this promise given to Abraham by God. And that we, the temple of God, the priests in this new temple, are the ultimate fulfillment of that promise. We are the descendants of Abraham. Next we come to the story of the tabernacle. The Israelites have been rescued out of Egypt where they were slaves. And they're out in the wilderness at the foot of Mount Sinai. And they're given this covenant with God, and then God instructs them to build a tabernacle. God says that he will dwell in this tabernacle and live in the midst of Israel. So they build the tabernacle, offer some sacrifices, and then pray for God to enter the tabernacle. And it's described in Exodus 40, verse 34 and 38. Then the cloud covered the tent of the meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night and in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. Here is a picture, actually, that I found online of what it might look like. (laughs) Just see the tents of the Israelites around, then the tabernacle in the middle with God's glory as fire descending upon it. Now God is dwelling in their midst and is in the tabernacle that the Israelites interact with God. And the tabernacle continues to be a focal point of Israelite worship. Although their faithfulness to God becomes somewhat turbulent, um, eventually we get to the time of David, and he's king over Israel. And he wants to build God a temple. And he asks him, he said, I want to build you a temple. God's like, you know, I don't really need a house. I've never had one. Why Why do I need a house? And that's something important to remember. God doesn't need a temple. He doesn't need a building to live in. In fact, it says in Isaiah 61 verse 1, um, there it is. This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Could you build me a temple as good as that? Could you build me such a resting place? Once again, God is everywhere. But there's something unique about the temple. Therefore, God tells David that a temple will be built. But not by David, since he has shed so much blood. Instead, a descendant of David will build an everlasting temple. And that's the promise given to David and the Israelite nation. And this is one verse that's part of this whole big promise God gives them. He's talking about this Messiah who would build the everlasting temple. He is the one who will build my house, a temple for my name, and I will secure his royal throne forever. Then David dies, and his son Solomon becomes king and builds the temple. And they offer a bunch of sacrifices. They pray a ton, and they invite God to live in the temple. And his presence comes in it. And look at 2 Chronicles chapter 7. When Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices Consume the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And once again, I have another picture (laughs) to help illustrate it. 
here we have the temple in the background and fire coming down, and then the bright white light in the background being the glory of God. Now God is dwelling in the temple. But the question is, is Solomon the promised one? Has he built the everlasting temple? And as we get further into the story of Solomon, we see that he most definitely isn't. (laughs) He uses tons of slaves. Seriously, he has a thousand wives and concubines. And he ends up just worshiping all these other gods. He is not the one that was promised. And this continues to be a theme generation after generation as the Israelite nation does not represent the kingdom of God or the temple of God. They begin to fall into idolatry. They begin to oppress the widows and the orphans and the sojourners and the immigrants. And they begin to do child sacrifice. And so eventually Israel is conquered, sent into exile, and the temple is destroyed. Obviously, since it's destroyed, this is not the everlasting temple that was promised. But the Israelites return from exile, and they're really excited. They're like, this is a new beginning. We're going to do really well. We're not going to do child sacrifice, all those other crazy things they were, they were getting into before the exile. And this story is told in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. They start to rebuild a new temple. And after the construction, they offer sacrifices and prayers and repeat pretty much what happened with Moses in the tabernacle and Solomon in the temple. They're asking God to live in it, and they're all excited, and then nothing happens. The younger people celebrate. They're all excited. Yeah, we have a temple. Yeah. But the elders, they mourn because they had seen the old temple. They knew the stories of when the tabernacle was filled with the glory of God. They knew that when the temple was inaugurated, that fire came down, that there was wind and that there was glory, but nothing happened here. The unique presence of God was not in this temple. And so they wailed, it says. But in the midst of this, there's hope. The prophets during this time, they speak of a time when the Messiah would come and would build this everlasting temple. And that um, there will be a time when God will dwell in the midst of Israel once more. So it is with that hope in mind, the hope of God living with his people and the temple being established on earth that we move into the New Testament. And right away, we get to the Gospel of Matthew and Matthew calls Jesus Emmanuel, God with us. Temple imagery, God with us. And then John opens his gospel talking about the word becoming flesh and the word being eternal with the Father. And the word is Jesus in this, in this prologue to the gospel. And then he says this in John chapter 1. The word, meaning Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. What is interesting about this sentence is that the word dwell there, that they translate dwell, the literal translation is tabernacle. Interesting, right? So the literal translation would be, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. This is a direct reference back to the tabernacle where God first lived amongst Israelites. And so all the gospel writers start to portray Jesus as the new temple of God. And in fact, in John chapter 2, um, Jesus declares that he will destroy the temple, the physical temple there in Jerusalem, and that he will rebuild it in three days. And, of course, everyone gets really upset with him. And we're left wondering, well, does he literally, like, how is he going to do that? That doesn't make any sense. That's because he's not referring to the building. He's referring to his flesh as a new temple that will be destroyed on the cross and then resurrected into something better and everlasting after three days. This means that Jesus is the crucial temple. That is the real, 
the ultimate meeting place between God and humans. He is the ultimate priest, the high priest. He is the ultimate sacrifice. His flesh is the veil that is torn, and his shattered, broken body is the shattered, broken temple that rises on the third day to become the real meeting place between God and people. With the resurrection, there's the creation of a new and better temple that is not confined to a building. After his resurrection, he sort of travels around for about 40 days and is revealing himself to his disciples and others. And then he descends to the right hand of the Father. But before his ascension, he commands his followers to wait for the Holy Spirit, thereby becoming the temple of God, and then to multiply across the face of the earth. Does that sound familiar? This was the command given to Adam and Eve. This was the original mandate for humankind that was repeated to Noah and then given as a promise to Abraham. The promise and the command to multiply the temple of God. And so we come to Pentecost, what we are celebrating today. After Jesus ascends, God the Spirit is poured out on the people of God and the new temple is formed. And here's a picture. Here we have multiple ethnicities, men and women, And what's above them? Fire. Fire. Throughout the Old Testament, fire and wind symbolize the unique presence of God. There's Moses and the burning bush, the pillar of fire that leads the Israelites out of Egypt. There's Elijah on the mountain. And then, of course, there's our tabernacles and temples. And here we see this unique presence begin to live in the people of God. And immediately following God's dwelling in his people, his tabernacling presence, this command to multiply and expand the the temple is realized because right away 3,000 people are added to the number in one day. And it doesn't stop there. The New Testament writers talk quite a bit about the church being the temple of God. In fact, um, Peter says this, you are coming to Christ who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. And you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. Peter is describing the temple and how Jesus is the foundation of it. He then goes on to describe how we are part of this temple that is being built up by God. And he describes us as living stones. Seems like quite the paradox. To be a stone is to be inanimate. Stones are never alive. Yet, Peter describes us as the living stones that form the temple. This is because we all have the Holy Spirit within us, raising us to new life every day. We are no longer dead, but alive in Christ. And all of us together form the temple that is Jesus. Paul talks in similar ways and goes even further and says that we are the body of Christ here on earth. And as you know, Jesus is the temple of God. Now back to the question we asked at the beginning. What does this mean? It means that you are the temple of God. It means that we, one life, are part of the literal temple of God here on earth. And being the temple of God does not inform whether or not we get tattoos or whatever. That doesn't matter. It means that we are a huge part of God's desire to restore and reconcile this entire world. It means that we are viewed so highly by God that he has chosen to live within us. It means that we, that you, are where heaven and earth meet. You are the unique place where God lives and interacts with humans. 
We are the temple of God. But let us not ever forget the original mandate that God gave humans at the very beginning. We must expand the temple and multiply across the universe. But what does it look like to expand this temple? Well, let's look at this vision an Old Testament prophet has of the future temple, which is us. We are the future temple. And uh, it's in Ezekiel. And Ezekiel uh, sees this temple in his vision, and it's really beautiful and grand and amazing. And then he sees the streams of water flowing out from the temple into the desert in the wilderness. And then a man comes and guides him and starts guiding him along the streams of water. And as they're going, the stream turns into a river to the point where he, can't, he has to swim across it. He can't walk across. And when we get to this point in the story, um, they're about to turn around and go back to the temple along the river. He asked me, have you been watching, son of man? Then he led me back along the riverbank. When I returned, I was surprised by the sight of many trees growing on both sides of the river. Then he said to me, this river flows east through the desert into the valley of the Dead Sea. The waters of this stream will make the salty waters of the Dead Sea fresh and pure. There will be swarms of living things wherever the water of this river flows. Fish will abound in the Dead Sea, for its waters will become fresh. Life will flourish wherever this water flows. Fishermen will stand along the shores of the Dead Sea, all the way from Engedi to En Eglaim. The shores will be covered with nets drying in the sun. Fish of every kind will fill the Dead Sea, just as they fill the Mediterranean. But the marshes and the swamps will not be purified. They will still be salty. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow, will grow along both sides of the river. The leaves of these trees will never turn brown and fall, and there will always be fruit on their branches. There will be a new crop every month, for they are watered by the river flowing from the temple. The fruit will be for food and the leaves for healing. This image is representing what the temple is supposed to do. The temple is where God the Spirit lives, and where the Spirit is, there is life and life abundant. So much life that it begins to pour out and spread itself in places that are thought to be dead. It turns deserts into beautiful gardens, and the dead sea into a sea full of life. This is the same Spirit that created the heavens and the moons and the stars. It is the same Spirit that empowered Jesus for ministry, and it is the same Spirit that resurrected Jesus' dead broken body. And crazy enough, it is the same spirit that is at work in you, bringing you from death to life every day and filling you with living water. But not so that the water can stagnate within us, but so that it may flow from us, the living stones, the temple of God, and create life in places where all hope seems lost. I sort of view it as we're almost like hot spots. You know, we, a lot of people, a lot of us have Androids or iPhones and um, you can turn on your hotspot, and then you're giving Wi-Fi to all around you. Sort of like what we are. But this Wi-Fi is connected to something bigger, right? It's not just you're just by yourself creating the internet on your own. You're connected to a larger source. That's what we are. We are the temple of God, and we are hotspots for God's presence, and living water is flowing out of us. And rest assured that what Ezekiel envisioned has begun and is continuing to work through you. And there will be a time when Jesus returns and everything is made new. The last couple chapters of the book of Revelation actually illustrate this. Um, the author depicts a time in which the whole cosmos, the whole universe, is one huge garden full of life, and God is dwelling with his people. This is in Revelations chapter 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, 
Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And remember, that word dwell in Greek is skene, tabernacle. God will be tabernacled amongst his people. And there's no temple described in these chapters because the whole universe is now God's temple. So what does this mean to us, the temple of God, here at One Life Community Church in Seattle? It means that we are a part of a grand story that began a long time ago. And we have a calling, a mandate, to be the temple of God to a city, to a country, and to a world that needs life. Therefore, this is my prayer for us. May we have streams of living water flowing out of us and creating beauty in the midst of chaos. May life sprout up wherever we are. May we cultivate God's goodness and beauty in all of our areas of influence, whether that is at work, at the store, at school, in our neighborhood, within our family, or with our friends. May we love others as God has loved us. And may that love radiate out of us to everyone we come in contact with. May we expand the temple of God by proclaiming the good news. The good news of the forgiveness of sins. The good news of the love of God and that this love is present and active in this world. And the good news of the resurrection of all things. But this will take sacrifice. Because it means going to the fringe of the garden. And even potentially going right outside the garden. And that's always uncomfortable. However, rest assured, Jesus has promised us that wherever we go, when we go to the fringe of the garden, he will always be with us. So may we all know that the Spirit of God is within us wherever we might be and is empowering us for this grand temple expansion. At this point, I would like to invite uh, the worship team up. We are going to have a short time of reflection uh, and then one last song to close the service. And while you are reflecting, I have two questions for you to think about. What does being the temple of God look like in your areas of influence? And are you expanding the temple and bringing life to those around you? If you're answering your connection cards, remember to drop them off in the boxes as you exit. Let's pray. God, thank you that you have such a creative uh, mind, that you create this massive story that we are a part of. It's so exciting, and I pray that everyone here would be excited for what they are a part of and would desire to see your garden, your temple, and cross the entire universe. Be with us as we embark on this. In Jesus' name, amen.